Hey, TCAT fans, you've heard me talk about it before, but I love Audible. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app, and they make it so easy to discover something new, something you'll love. Right now, I'm listening to The Teacher, which is an amazing audiobook. It's a thriller, and it's got me on the edge of my seat. With Audible, you can also discover thousands of podcasts from your popular favorites to exclusive new series. And I love the fact that, you know, I can take my titles with me wherever I go and listen to them wherever I want. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And members get full access to a growing selection of included audiobooks, Audible originals, and podcasts. You can download or stream their included titles all you want. And as a lover of true crime, you're going to find a lot of mystery, thrillers, true crime audiobooks that you will absolutely love. New members can try Audible free for 30 days visit audible.com slash TCAT or text TCAT to 500-500. That's audible.com slash TCAT or text TCATT to 500-500. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 246 of the True Crime All the Time podcast. I'm Mike Ferguson, and with me, as always, is my partner in true crime, Mike Gibson. Gibby, how are you? Hey, man, I'm doing good. How about you? I'm doing great. Yeah, good. Just one time, I want you to say something else. Okay. I'm, I'm doing horrible. I hate you. I'm done with this. No, I'm I don't want you here. to say any of that. I'm out of here, man. That's the thing about you, though, man, that I've always really liked is... You just kind of always in a good mood. You're upbeat. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's maybe why you and I get along so well, because I, I am not always that way. You're you know, not. they say opposites attract. Yeah. And um, so I, my emotions kind of can uh, run the gamut for sure. They do. But you're pretty even keeled. I try. Um, you try to be? Yeah. You should. It's good. Mm-hmm. It's a good way to live, man. Yeah. Wish I could uh, rein mine in sometimes. When people cut me off or something like that. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. And probably would never happen. No. No. no I mean, by this age, I don't think I'm changing. Probably just get worse as you it get It probably will. Get off of my lawn. Yeah. All right, buddy. We got some shout outs. Okay. Let's give those. We had Mara Yeager. What's going on, Mara? Katrinka Dotson jumped out at her highest level. Well, thank you, Katrinka. Carrie Bevan. What's going on, Carrie? Claudia Margiata. Margiata. Cody Cole. Hey, Cody. Ann Perkins. Appreciate that, Ann. L. Jasper. What's going on, L? Dana Venturi. Hey, Venturi. Kimba S. Appreciate that, Kimba. Carrie Sorensen. Ooh, Kelly. Miranda Humphrey jumped out of her highest level. What's going on, Humphrey? Kalisha Simpkins jumped out of her highest level. Man, Simpkin in the house. We had Karen. What's going on, Karen? Jamie Fogel. Hey, Jamie. Teresa Ann. Hey, Teresa. Kathy. Appreciate that, Kathy. Francesca Battaglioli jumped Ooh. out of her highest level. Battaglioli. <laughs> boy that uh i don't think that's right <laughs> and last but not least we had gabrielle van hey gabrielle and then if we go back into the vault gibbs this week we selected ali g 
Boom, Allie G. Yeah, been with us a long time. Mm -hmm. We appreciate all the new support, the continued support on Patreon. We also had some great PayPal donations from Christy Della Serta. Della Serta. Jamie Lynn Hamby. What's going on, Hamby? Darlene Half. Hey, Darlene. Lauren Porter. Hey, Lauren. And Megan Hunt. Oh, appreciate that, Megan. So all of that is very much appreciated. Gibbs, right now on True Crime All the Time Unsolved, we have an episode out on the Chicago Strangler. Yeah, it was a good case. It is, and I, and I don't, I think you said it on our weekly Patreon episode that, you know, this is a case that is not as well known as a lot of, you know, infamous unsolved cases. Right. And I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about possible victims in the number range of 50 plus here. It's a lot of victims, man. Yeah. So. so we'll get into all the details around that. Don't forget about crime con. You know, if you're going, if you're wanting to go, make sure you get your tickets. From what I understand, they're going quick. They're going really quick. And uh, so if you go to crimecon.com, use our promo code TCAT, you'll get 10% off your standard badge price. TCAA. Wait, TCA. <laughs> T-C-A-T-T. Yeah, say that 10 times fast. True crime all the time. Yeah. All right, buddy. Are you ready to get into this episode of True Crime All the Time? I'm ready. We are talking about the murder of Cassie Joe Stoddard. You know, this is a, a horrendous case. And some of the details are, frankly, unbelievable. It was on September 24th, 2006, that Cassie Joe Stoddard was found stabbed to death inside her aunt and uncle's home, the crime scene was a horrific sight. And the perpetrators turned out to be two pretty unlikely suspects, two of Cassie's high school friends. Cassie's murder case is often called the scream murder because these two guys, Tori Adamchick and Brian Draper, were inspired by the movie Scream. Now, they were also inspired by some serial killers, Bundy, Gacy, and others, but they wanted to make their own claim to fame, Gibbs, by turning Cassie's murder into their own kind of homemade horror film. It's jacked up, man. It is. And we're going to get into all of it. We are. Cassie Jo Stoddard was a 16-year-old girl from Pocatello, Idaho. Gibbs, everyone who has talked about Cassie has had nothing but positive things to say about her. Almost all the kids at Pocatello High School liked her. You know, she was getting good grades. She was on the right track to get into a top college and have a successful future. Christy Stoddard, her sister, told the show Your Worst Nightmare that Cassie was always determined to do well for herself. She was a kind person who was always there to reach out a helping hand Cassie's uncle, Frank Contreras, told the Idaho State Journal, Cassie was a good girl. She didn't drink, she didn't use drugs, and she was a straight-A student. She was responsible. She was a model student. And a model person. Yeah. I think. I mean, both together. It's sad. You know, when, when we talk about victims, you hear this a lot. Now, it's sad when anybody is murdered. Don't Don't get me wrong. Even if they had some negative things to say. Right. And I think there's also the factor of, okay, is anybody really going to say negative things? Well, we just had an episode recently. We did. Where somebody did say some negative things about the victim. We were right. shocked. 
happened in another country. It was still shocking. But I like to think that, you know, these people, these victims that we talk about, especially the young ones, they are just really good people. Yeah. Haven't even really started their lives, but they all seem to be on the right track, right? They get good grades. They're thought of as nice people. They're well-liked by their, their friends. And I think some of them are just too trusting well, of others, right? There's, there's no doubt. There, there's no doubt that sometimes when you peel back the layers of what exactly happened, we do find out that you know a lot of these people have a very trusting nature. Yeah. And sometimes that does lead to you know what ultimately happens to them. That's sad too, because you want people to be like that. You, right. you should be able to trust others. You should be able to lend a hand and, and not think that everybody that you meet is a killer. I remember when my daughter was in that middle school age. Her middle school age or your middle school age? Because no, there's no. probably about a four or five year difference. Oh, that hurt, man. That hurt. No, yeah, her middle school age. I just remember she was like, anywhere we go, she was like, super friendly and i was like hey <laughs> too too friendly yeah too friendly dial it back exactly. and you hate to say that yeah. but you know it's a scary world out there we all know that cassie was dating a boy named matt beckham and he was a good guy by all accounts he was a, a very nice guy and a good boyfriend to cassie her parents have said that they trusted him and they liked him a lot Matt and Cassie were friends with two other 16-year-olds named Tori Adamchick and Brian Draper. Tori was passionate about filmmaking. Brian was outgoing, and he played on the high school soccer team. They both seemed like normal teenage boys. The problem is, Gibbs, they were hiding a secret fascination with serial killers and especially the Columbine shooting. Now, the one thing I will say, Gibbs, is that, okay, a fascination with serial killers and even the Columbine shooting, I think on its own doesn't necessarily mean it's bad, right? Do we have a fascination with killers and serial killers? Do people listening have a fascination? I would say the answer is probably yes. Absolutely. I think they do. Now, it doesn't mean they want to be like them. Yeah. They don't want to pattern their actions after them. They're fascinated because they can't understand them. They're trying to, you know, understand what makes these people right. tick and what causes them to do the, the things that they do. I think we're talking about a different type of fascination here with these two boys. Yeah. I think, uh, listeners aren't idolizing. No, absolutely not. And neither are we. I mean, right. We're, we're very careful not to glorify these people that we talk about. If anything, we kind of put them down sometimes because, yeah. you know, they're, they're pieces of, you know, what they are in a lot of case, in most cases, I would say Brian had a website with memorials to three of the victims of the Columbine shooting. His website was titled, you will be missed. Okay. That seems like a good thing, right? Develop a website, put it out there memorialize the victims and i'm saying hey you you know you will be missed it is nice until you scroll down to the bottom of his webpage because he had more victims to come yeah at the bottom of the page more victims to come okay now that's creepy it's not known if anyone knew about this website or 
if they did, if anyone reported it as a threat. I think today, for sure, we would look at that as a sign that, okay, something's going on here. Yeah. That would be viewed as a threat. Absolutely, I think, in, in today's culture. I think there'd be some investigation going on. Yeah, absolutely. Brian and Tori's biggest secret was that they were planning a murder of their own. And they wanted to film the entire process as part of, you know, what they were thinking would be this type of real life horror movie. Now, as you can imagine, these boys were very secretive about their plans, right? You can't go around telling your mom and dad, you can't be sitting at the dinner table over pork chops and mashed potatoes saying, okay, here's my plan. What do you think? Because that's not going to go over well in most families. Oh, I think somebody at the dinner table would be like, um... Excuse me, boys. We need, think so. <laughs> we need to call somebody right away. Yeah, yeah. Really, only Tori and Brian knew the full extent of what they were going to do one day. Their 18-year-old friend, Joe Lucero, helped them purchase knives from a pawn shop. On August 31st, 2006, Joe received a phone call from Tori asking if he would buy some knives from them. Okay, these are two 16-year-olds. They can't just walk into a pawn shop. Heck, I don't, they can't even walk into a Cabela's, right, and, and buy a knife. I think you have to be 18 years old pretty much anywhere to buy a knife these days. I made my own. Back in the day? Yeah. That would not surprise me. You and I talk a lot about knives. It's something that we're, we're kind of into. We collect knives. We have a lot of knives. You know me. I collect a lot of things. You do. So Tori and Joe went to a local pawn shop to buy knives. Brian provided the money, $40. And for that $40, Tori got one knife and Brian got three. You know, obviously your money goes a long way at a pawn shop for a lot of things. So let's shift focus back to Cassie, right? Like most 16 year olds, she really wanted a car. And so she was looking for ways to make money so that she could buy herself one. When Allison and Frank Contreras, her aunt and uncle, offered to pay her to house sit while they went on vacation, that seemed like the perfect opportunity to make some money. Easy money. Easy money. And I know a lot of kids that do that. My daughter's boyfriend has done that for a number of years. He has like a, a, a list of people and they know if they're going on vacation, okay, we're going to call him. He'll make sure the the pets are taken care of, the trash is taken out, whatever it is. Yeah, but strangely, he said no to my requests. Yeah, I don't think he was ready for that. Okay, you know, yeah, he he's pretty experienced. I don't think he was ready for Chateau Gibson. Yeah, he just said no, 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 thank you, and disconnected. Yeah, which I applaud him for. But I think I've said it before, Gibbs, you know, I, I admire kids, 14, 15, 16, how, you know, however old looking for ways to make their own money. Absolutely. You know, whether back in the day it was having a paper route, that was a big deal. You had to get up early and, you know, fold the papers and do all that, ride your bike around town, throwing papers on people's porches, whatever it is. I really have a lot of admiration for kids who want to make their own money. I think we have probably less and less of those kids now than we did in years past. Oh, I think so. Yeah. I think it's dwindled on Friday, September 22nd, 2006 at five thirty PM. 
Cassie's mother dropped her off at her aunt and uncle's house. They lived in the town of Chubbuck. That's what I'm calling it. I know I'm going to get emails saying that I'm pronouncing it wrong, but it was about 15 minutes away from Cassie's home. Her mother planned to pick her up on Sunday morning when her aunt and uncle returned from vacation. So she was going to be there the entire time, which is somewhat normal, I think, in a house sitting. Sometimes people leave, they just come back to feed the pets and let them out. And, but, you know, different situations. One of the problems Gibbs is Cassie had no car. We just talked about it. Yeah. So, so she's going to be stuck there. Right. Unless, you know, her mom or somebody was going to come pick her up and take her back and forth. Or she called a friend for a ride. She had no way to really leave. And her aunt and uncle lived in a pretty remote area. I guess their nearest neighbor was about a half a mile away. Yeah. So as a friend or a parent, you're probably like, you know, do they really want to make that uh, drive out there again and again if she needed something? I think some people would, but I'd be like, you sure you need me to come out there? (laughs) Are you sure? So you're telling me you wouldn't drive 15 minutes to go pick up your kids and drop them off and take them back? No, it costs too much gas money. Oh, I forgot. Who am I, who am I talking to? Yeah. Why would I even ask that question? So we have to talk about this house, right? Set it pretty remote area. It was also an older home. And like a lot of older homes, it made lots of noises. It had creaky floorboards. It's thought by many people that Cassie was probably a little nervous about being there alone. I don't know how many different people she relayed that to, if that's a fact or that's just uh, an assumption that many people have made. It would be a little freaky, you know, if you stay in a home like that and you're out in kind of rural area. I mean, every time you hear a noise, you're probably thinking, who's that? What yeah, that? what is that? Yeah. Well, and, and let's not forget, she's only 16 years old, but she wanted the money. I think at the same time, like a lot of kids, she wanted to show her mom that she was mature, that she was responsible, and that she could handle this on her own. Well, yeah, she made that commitment to do it. Her aunt and uncle's gone, so if she doesn't do it. Letting them down. Yeah. And and maybe in her mind feeling like she let herself down and is looking bad in the eyes of, of others. I get that. Matt was dropped off to see Cassie about an hour later and Cassie's aunt and uncle had given her permission to have Matt over and both of their parents were fine with them hanging out at the house unsupervised. Again, we talked about the fact that these were both good kids and I think Gibbs, they had built up an extreme amount of trust with their parents. That's what happens when you do the right thing consistently, you know, you build up that credit in the trust department. At 8.30 p.m., Tori Adamchick and Brian Draper showed up to the house. Matt had invited them over and told them that Cassie was having a party. When they got there, they saw, okay, no party. Now, Cassie was angry that Matt invited them. Her aunt told her specifically that Matt was the only person she was allowed to have at the house. And, you know, Gibbs, like we said, Kathy was a good girl. She wasn't a rule breaker. But at the same time, she also wasn't a rude person. So, you know, she didn't want to confront these boys and say, you can't be here or, you know, say something to try to send them away. Because of that, Tori and Brian stayed at the house for about two hours. Yeah. At some point, Brian told Cassie and Matt that he wanted to leave because 
he didn't like the movie they were watching and he wanted to go to the movie theater and see something else. Tori and Brian left around 10 30 PM. Yeah. But before they left that Brian was a little uh, sneaky guy because he went downstairs and he unlocked the back door to the house. Yeah. Yeah. I think sneaky might be a, a euphemism here, right? There is definitely some bad intentions involved for sure. So Tori and Brian had left. Cassie and Matt were alone in the house. They finished their movie. But then just after 10.30 p.m., all of a sudden, Gibbs, all of the lights in the house went out. Okay, you're in a home that's not your own. Now, it's your aunt and uncle's. You're probably somewhat familiar with it. But still, you're in a remote area. The closest neighbor is uh, about a half a mile away. That's a scary proposition. I think even when your boyfriend is there with you, Cassie was scared and she asked Matt to go check the circuit breaker in the basement. But just before he went down, the lights came back on. And then around 11 PM, Matt's mom came to pick him up. I think the problem for Cassie was this was just about what Gibbs 30 minutes after this whole light thing. Right. So she was still on edge, on edge, a little bit freaked out little scared and she asked Matt to see if he could stay with her. He went outside and asked his mom and she told him absolutely not. Probably wanted a little uh chaperoning going on if that was going to happen. Yeah, I get it. I get it, right? 16-year-olds most parents really don't want them staying overnight by themselves. So she told him no way, but he did say that if Cassie was scared, she could spend the night at their house. And she would drop her back off in the morning. So obviously she was being very nice. It wasn't because she didn't like Cassie. It was probably more so because, you know, everybody knows what happens when, uh, or what can happen when boyfriend and girlfriend get together, they're allowed to stay by themselves at night. Okay. Parents watch out for that. Yeah, they do. Not always successfully. They try to They try. So obviously Matt relayed that information to Cassie. Yeah, she wasn't happy. She was still scared. She wanted to go with Matt, but ultimately decided not to. She figured it would be best if she stayed at the house. I think Gibbs, she was looking at it from a responsibility standpoint, Yeah, right? It was her responsibility to watch the house. She was getting paid to stay there, not at Matt's house. So Matt left her just after 11 p.m. All right, Gibbs, let's talk about GoodRx for a minute. You know, getting the care you need to stay healthy shouldn't be hard or expensive. Everyone should be able to afford their medication. So check out GoodRx. They help me find the lowest price on my prescriptions every time. With GoodRx, you can instantly compare prices for your prescription at every pharmacy in your neighborhood and save up to 80%. 80%. GoodRx is free and easy to use, and many times it's often cheaper than using your insurance copay or Medicare. With GoodRx, you can find discounts for your prescriptions at over 70,000 pharmacies like CVS, Kroger, Walgreens, Rite Aid, Vons, Walmart, and more. GoodRx is the number one most downloaded medical app. And millions of Americans use GoodRx to get affordable health care every month. Ever since I learned about it, I'm using it every time now. I even got my mother-in-law to use it on her phone. She was blown away. 
by how much money she was able to save just by shopping around using the information on GoodRx. So start saving up to 80% on your prescriptions today. Go to GoodRx.com slash TCAT. That is GoodRx.com slash TCAT. GoodRx.com slash TCAT. GoodRx is not insurance, but can be used instead of insurance. In 2020, GoodRx users received an average savings of over 70% of retail prices. Did you know that according to FBI property crime data, most home break-ins happen in broad daylight? As the days get longer this spring, protect your home with Simply Safe. I've been using Simply Safe for about four or five years now, and it's the award-winning home security that I recommend. I've turned a lot of friends, family members, and fans onto it as well. Both experts and customers love Simply Safe for its comprehensive protection. It was just named Best Home Security Systems of 2024 by U.S. News and World Report and recognized for the best customer service in home security by Newsweek. They have advanced technology to protect every room, window, and door of your home. They also have a slew of cameras to keep watch for suspicious activity 24-7. Protect your home today. Our listeners get a special 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/tcat. That's simplysafe.com/tcat. There's no safe like Simply Safe. On his way home, Matt called Tori and told him that he was headed home for the night. Innocent, right? This is an innocent phone call. Right. The problem is and there's no way that Matt could have known this, but Basically, what he did was give these two boys the signal. Yeah, setting it up. That Cassie was all alone in the home. They were clear to carry out their plans. Matt later recalled that Tori was whispering quietly and said he was at the movies. Well, it turns out he wasn't. In reality, he was outside of the house where Cassie was staying, just waiting to go back inside. Yeah. Now, Cassie thought she was safely locked inside the house, right? She probably went around, made sure all the doors were locked. The problem is she didn't know that before he left, Brian had unlocked the back door leading to the basement. Sometime after 11 p.m., the lights went out again. So now you're talking about real fear. She was scared before. Oh, sure. And that was when Matt was there. Now Matt's gone. She had to have been almost frozen. Yeah. With fear. And there's no way she was going to check out the basement. No. No. I mean, anybody that's seen a scary movie knows don't go into the basement. Now, the accounts given later by Tori and Brian differ a little bit on exactly what happened, but the basic facts are the same. Tori and Brian continued to turn the lights on and off, scaring Cassie. What they were trying to do, Gibbs, is get her to come downstairs to the basement to check out the circuit breaker, but she never did. So they ended up coming upstairs wearing masks and dark clothing. At some point, Cassie heard their footsteps and yelled, who's there? The boy snuck up on her and they both stabbed her multiple times. She tried to fight them off, but she couldn't, right? They overpowered her and they killed her. Afterwards, they fled the scene and they took the clothes and the murder weapon with them. But they left Cassie's body in the house. Gibbs, the very next day, Matt spent the day with Tori, not knowing that he had just murdered his girlfriend. 
So, I mean, I think you got to take a step back here, right? These are 16-year-old boys. Yeah. You're able to spend the day with your friend who happened to be the boyfriend of, of a young girl that you just murdered. What does that say about this kid? He wasn't shaking in his boots, right? He wasn't no. sitting in his basement crying over what he had just done. Just cold and callous. And basically acting as though it was any other day. Hey, let's hang out like we always do. On Sunday, September 24th, Cassie's family came back to the house. It was her 13-year-old cousin, Kelsey, who ran in ahead of her parents and found Cassie's body laying on the living room floor. Well, for a 13-year-old to come in and see that, had to be shocking. Yeah. Well, number one, Gibbs, I think to find a dead body to see a dead body that would shock anyone. And, you know, you're going to be working through a lot of things for a number of years, but to find your cousin who's only three years older, I bet you they were pretty close. Yeah. I, I, that must've been extremely tough for her and the aunt and uncle as well. Well, and it's been two days too. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, it's not like they found her within a couple of hours of her being killed. It was essentially, you know, almost two days later. They immediately called the police. Christy Stoddard was at work when her uncle came in during her shift. He told her there had been a family emergency. Someone stabbed Cassie and she was dead. Christy didn't believe it until she went to the house and saw the crime scene. Cassie's mom didn't find out that she was dead until she arrived to pick up her daughter. So you talk about shocking, right? This whole family is in shock. They have no idea what happened. They only know that Cassie's dead. Yeah. And when we say she was stabbed, it wasn't just one or two times by these kids. No, it turned out that she was stabbed over 30 times. And it was stated that 12 of those wounds were fatal. They determined that she was stabbed with two different knives, which indicated to police that two different people were involved in her murder, which I think is a safe assumption. Now, could you have one person who has two knives and uses them both? Yeah, you could. Well, sure you could. But I think the natural assumption, whether it's determining two different knives were used or two different caliber of bullets were used, that assumption is going to be that there were multiple people involved. Yeah. Well, Cassie's mom knew that Matt was one of the people that saw her last because she gave permission for Matt to come over and, and, and stay there with her. Yeah. So, I mean, I think naturally, right. Matt was going to be the first suspect. Like you said, police found out he was at the house. He was the closest person to Cassie. So a detective went to his house to talk to him and this encounter, this interaction, Gibbs has been described as it relates to Matt as him being emotionless, which, you know, right away, detectives are going to be suspicious. Hey, we're talking to you. We just told you that your girlfriend was murdered. No emotion. But at the same time, they felt as though Matt was being truthful during their conversation. And then Matt told a detective that Tori and Brian were also at the house that night. Tori and Brian were interviewed separately. And I think initially police weren't real high on them as suspects in the murder. For one thing, I think it's hard for a lot of us to think that 
you know, a 16 year old boy is capable of this type of violence. Yeah. Could they plan something like this? Carry it out. Now we know boys fight, right? Sure. You and I back in the day probably gotten our share of scrapes. Oh, I, yeah. I know I did not always on the winning side. Unfortunately, I know you were, of course, because you were a master in all kinds of different disciplines, but you know, in all seriousness, when you think about 15, 16 year olds, you don't think about them sitting around planning, masterminding, you know, this type of heinous murder. Now we know it's possible because we've talked about a bunch of them, but I think right off the bat, it's just not something that you would immediately go to. No, the police are going to get there. We know that. Sure. Yeah. And I don't think it took them all that long. Gibbs, I, th- I think they changed their minds about Tori and Brian after the first interview. So the first story that the boys told was that they went to the house for a party. When they got there, they found out that there was no party. So they left and they went to the movies. The problem they ran into was that they couldn't tell the detective the name of the movie they saw, who was in it, or even the basic plot of the movie. So sounds very much like you when you bring up some movie that you all of a sudden can't remember a single detail about. Yeah, but that's me. That is you. And you're not trying to cover your tracks for a murder. No. So, I mean, you think about this again, they're 16 years old. How, how smart are they? How cunning are they? Do they not think that when they, are giving their alibi to police that, you know, detectives might dig in a little further. They might ask some probing questions. Well, look, I'm no movie expert. That is for sure. And that's where I differ from these boys. Yeah. Cause at one point they both called themselves movie experts. So that's very unusual for somebody to say that they're a movie buff and let's go further. I'm a movie expert. Yeah. But I just saw a movie a few days ago, and I can't tell you anything about it. Main character, the plot, nothing? Really? Really? That's what I always say about you when you start down a path and then can't tell me a single thing about it. I know. And somehow I know what the movie is anyway. So I'd have to bring you in. I'd be like, hey, I need to make a phone call. They're like, oh, great. He wants his attorney. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I just need Fergie. To tell me what movie I saw. Because he'll remember the movie. As I explain it to you, he'll, he'll, he'll get it. Matt came into the police station to take a polygraph. He passed and he was cleared as a suspect. So really after that, police zeroed in on Tori and Brock really as as their two main suspects. They were interviewed a second time, a third time, and every time their story changed a little bit. Okay. That's not good either. You know, when you're, when you're talking to police, They're checking for that, right? That's why you go through a bunch of different interviews, sometimes asked the exact same question multiple times. They want to see if your answer the third time is the same as it was the first time. It's kind of like a spouse questioning another spouse when they don't believe they're being told the truth. Yeah, they might wait a day, a couple of days, ask you again. Wait a couple more days, ask you again, just to see if they're getting the same answer. Yeah. See if you, you know, slip up or an aha moment. 
some spouses can be amateur detectives. Like I'm sure a lot of our audience can be as well. Sure. Some people take pride in that, uh, that amateur detective label for good reason. But like I said, their stories changed in Brian's second interview. He told the officer that they were actually out burglarizing cars and that the reason he said they were at the movies was to cover that up. And I know Gibbs, we've talked about this before. I get the reasoning behind it because obviously burglarizing a car is not as bad as murder. Sure. But this is a very common tactic used by, you know, a lot of people once they've been kind of caught, not caught, but you know, like they feel trapped. Yeah. So they will admit to something they deem to be lesser in severity, hoping, I guess, that they'll get slapped on the wrist for that, but the police won't continue to look at them as a suspect in the murder. I don't know how many times it works, but uh, I guess you got to try something. But officers weren't buying the story. After this second interview, detectives received permission from Brian and his parents to search his bedroom. Inside his bedroom, they found a knife. Brian said the knife belonged to one of his friends, and he had no idea why it was in his bedroom. Likely story. Likely story, but also, you know, I'm thinking there's no plan here. Right. This is not, you know, I was, I was thinking about comparing this to a movie and in my head I had, um, I think it's called murder by numbers. Have you ever seen that one? I think that's the one with the young Ryan Gosling where these two kids are kind of pitted up against Sandra Bullock. Sandra Bullock. Yeah. I think, I think that's the name of it, but you know, the movie I'm talking about and they in it as well. Who? Michael Pitt. Yes. He played in Boardwalk Empire and they're, they're trying to use all this forensic knowledge and trying to get over, commit the perfect murder. There's none of that here. I mean, it, it it seems very fly by the seat of our pants type thing where you don't have an alibi, you use an alibi that you can't back up. You just leave a knife laying in your bedroom, have no idea how it got there. Yeah, I no, never understand when people do that. You know, I'm glad they do it because, you know, that's the way that, you know, some people get caught. Yeah, we don't want people to get away with anything. But I just, it makes you shake your head. Like, why wouldn't you have gotten rid of that? If it is the knife that was used, why would you have kept that? Tori and Brian were arrested on September 27, 2006. They were charged as adults and held on a million dollar bond. According to Tori's second interview, Brian stabbed Cassie first. She screamed loudly. Brian told Tori that he had to come and finish it. So Tori told the detective, I had to do it. Why? Because your buddy told you to, and you didn't want to look like a a punk in his eyes or like you chickened out or, I mean, he's already admitted that he did it. It's just the the reasoning behind it. So strange. Yeah. What you had to do was stop call 911 and get her help, but no. Now, in Brian's third interview, he said he was in the house, but he never stabbed Cassie. He thought the whole thing was just a prank. He admitted that they unlocked the door, but they were just planning to scare her. But it was Tori who took things too far, and Tori threatened to kill him if he said anything. 
He confessed that they buried the evidence in Black Rock Canyon. And Brian even took the police to the location where they uncovered some black clothing, three knives, two masks, and a videotape. So the boys are up against each other. Which often happens, right? When two people commit a crime, it's very natural for them to turn on each other because nobody wants to take the blame, right? You want to put the blame on someone else and minimize your role in the whole thing. But the videotape is important here because neither of the boys had ever mentioned a video. So police uncover this and, you know, Gibbs, they had to be worried about what they were going to see on this video when they watched it. It had to be bad because why would somebody hide it? Right. Along with all of the other tools that they use to commit the murder. A detective told the show your worst nightmare. You could have heard a pin drop in the room when the tape began and Gibbs. The tape was as horrifying as they were afraid it would be in the days before and after Cassie's murder. The boys filmed everything. They filmed their entire plot to kill her and they filmed the moments after her death. They recorded videos on September 21st, 22nd and the 23rd in total. There was about 31 minutes of video of them planning and even confessing to the murder. So I do want to read some excerpts of this video with a little warning that there is some pretty vulgar language. You got 16 year old boys. You're going to have that, but I think it's important to read it as it was said. In one of the earliest video clips, Brian said, I feel like I want to kill somebody. Uh, I know that's not normal, but what the hell? Tori responded, I feel like we need to break away from normal life. And, and to me, you know, this is important, Gibbs. You are getting an inside glimpse into what these kids are thinking, feeling in the moments, days before the murder, after the murder. And as their parents, you have to be sick to your stomach. Oh my gosh. When you watch this. Yeah. I, I, I don't often think about that. It's a good point. You know, what, what do parents think when they have a child who kills someone that's gotta be horrific. Then you've got this videotape that comes out that, you know, really kind of puts a spotlight on just how callous and depraved, you know, these two kids were because, you know, throughout the video, they laugh about killing someone. They even mention that they've tried to kill someone eight or nine times, but the people that they targeted had never been alone. Or if they were alone, their parents showed up before these kids could carry out what they wanted to do. One point, Tori said to Brian, we're not going to get caught. Brian said, we're going to make history. We're going to be just like scream except in real life terms. This is where the scream murder comes in because he specifically references the movie. And I guess the boys talked about the scream movie a lot. They also compared themselves to Ted Bundy, the hillside strangler and the Zodiac killer. Okay. Not people you really want to emulate. Yeah, these are the wrong people to idolize for sure. Tori even said at one point, those people were mere amateurs compared to what we are going to be. 
So, you know, if you're calling Ted Bundy an amateur killer and your thought is you're, you're going to surpass him. Scary. Yeah. Because Ted Bundy, Hillside Strangler, I mean, they had a body count. Yeah. And so to me, that means you're not planning on killing one person. If you're going to surpass these infamous killers, you're planning on killing multiple individuals. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Let me ask you all a question. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run, take a nap, read a book, go fishing? Well, a lot of us spend our lives wishing that we had more time. You have to know what's important to you to know how you would use that extra time and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've used the BetterHelp service before and it's great. I love the fact that you you can get matched with a licensed therapist, have a session from the comfort of your own home through your computer. I don't have to get in my truck, drive, sit in the waiting room, nothing like that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TCAT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash T-C-A-T-T. Hey, TCAT fans, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Now it's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the pasta lover, and yes, the true crime fan. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality, TV and gaming. There's something for everyone on Etsy. I bought a lot of stuff on Etsy for the studio, true crime related stuff. It's just a great place to browse. You'll find all kinds of amazing items. And it's a great place to get a gift for a friend, a family member, a loved one in your life. A gifting moment is always around the corner. But whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try gift mode now. Now, initially, the boys decided they were going to break into Cassie's home and scare her. But they said that that plan changed just a few hours later. On September 21st at 8.36 p.m., Tori and Brian decided that Cassie was going to be their victim, even if she was their friend. They didn't care. They made that decision I think in part gives because they had just found out that she was going to be house sitting alone. Brian said on the tape, as sad as it may be, she's our friend, but you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie Stoddard. We'll find out if she has friends over, if she's going to be alone in a big dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? Gibbs Tory said, I'm horny just thinking about it. These kids are messed up. Sexually excited over the fact that they're about ready to kill their friend. Brian said, hell yeah. So we're going to fucking kill her and her friends and we're going to keep moving on. I heard some news about a girl. She's going to be home alone from six to seven. So we might kill her. 
and drive over to Cassie's thing, scare the shit out of them and kill them one by fucking one. Hell yeah. Now I know a lot of 16 year old boys talk like this, right? I play Xbox. I hear them talking all the time. Not about killing people. Just they use a lot of profanity. Sure. They, they, they think that's cool. All right. I get it. I, you and I probably cussed a lot more when we were younger too. We don't as much anymore, but when you're doing it in the context of talking about, you know, killing multiple people and let's not forget, I mean, Cassie was their friend. They considered her a friend. She considered them friends. I mean, it, it is just something. On one part of the tape, Brian said, I'm sorry to Cassie's family, but she had to be the one. It's a bizarre thing to say. Why did she have to be the one? And you think the family really wants to hear that sorry? I'm sorry, family. No, they're not putting it. They wouldn't put any stock into that. And we're going to talk more about the tape in just a second. But you, you think about this tape. You and I often talk about evidence and good evidence and slam dunk type evidence. I don't know what else you're going to get here. You've got these kids laying out pretty much everything, what they're planning to do. And as we're going to find out what they did, right. Talking about it after the fact on the 22nd, the boys filmed themselves at school. They recorded a video of Cassie at her locker. They sat at a table openly talking about killing people. But I guess Gibbs, no one overheard this conversation, or at the very least, no one reported it. So that was the day of the murder. Yeah, during the day when they were at school, it seems like by that point, they'd already made up their mind, right? They were going to kill someone. They even said they had either attempted it or started the process eight or nine different times, got foiled, whatever. At 9.53 p.m., the boys recorded a short video talking about how they had unlocked the back door to the house where Cassie was house-sitting. At 11.30 p.m., the boys recorded themselves after they killed Cassie. On this part of the tape, Brian said, I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. Tori said, I'm shaking. I stabbed her in the throat. Brian replied, and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, I just killed Cassie. That felt like it wasn't even real. I mean, it went by so fast. Tori told him to shut the fuck up and said, we got to get our act straight. And Brian said, it's okay. We'll just buy movie tickets now. So obviously they had the movie idea ahead of time as a cover. As we know, Gibbs, it didn't go well because... They didn't get the details right. Now, the boys didn't film themselves killing Cassie, and they didn't record any footage of her body. But as disturbing as this tape is, police have to be, I don't want to use the word ecstatic, but they have to be feeling good because this is really strong evidence. Oh, absolutely. I mean, before this tape was found, you had one of them saying, I didn't stab her. And one of them pinning it on the other. Yeah. And on this video, you got them both. I want to say they're like high-fiving each other, but they're pretty... Pretty close to it. Yeah. But at the very least, they're admitting everything that they did. Now, you know, speaking of the video, you know, obviously Cassie's family was heartbroken, but they had to have been, I almost hate the word, I hate to use the word glad, but they had to have been, I don't know what else to use, Gibbs, glad that 
these boys didn't tape the murder, didn't tape her body, didn't record that part so that they didn't have to see that. It'd be rough to see your child go through that. Be actually being murdered. Yeah. And you, or seeing her dead body. Yeah. You know, just after the murder. You couldn't be there to protect her. Bad enough knowing it happened. Even worse, I think, seeing it actually happen. On September 28th, Brian confessed that he did stab Cassie, but he said it was only because Tori made him. He said Tori told him to stab Cassie to make sure she was dead. He also revealed that they created a hit list, including Matt Beckham, but they didn't kill him because he didn't stay at the house. Well, sure didn't sound like Tori made him do anything in that video. No, I mean, again, I think they're still trying to play the it wasn't me, it was him, or at the very least, I'm trying to minimize my role. It's pretty tough to do that, though. When you have this videotape that kind of lays it all out, I mean, they each said after the murder what they had done, and they were excited about it. How are you going to beat that in court? And I I mentioned that after they were arrested, they each got a million-dollar bond. Well, once police got this video... Those bonds were revoked. As they should have been. Cassie's family and the entire community experienced extreme shock and grief. Her classmates painted her portrait on a boulder on the property of the school as a memorial to her. All the football players wore her initials on an armband, and they had a moment of silence for her during games. Brian Draper's trial began on April 11, 2007. And, you know, this was a very high profile case. Gibbs police had to use some extreme security measures. Everyone had to pass through metal detectors and the jury was sequestered and monitored around the clock. They also had extra security for Brian's transport to and from prison. Yeah, I'm sure there's a few people who wanted both Brian and Tori uh, taken care of. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure there were people in the community that at least thought about it. However, seriously, that maybe they should take the law into their own hands and not wait for a jury to decide what should happen to them. Yeah, I know as parents, we've talked about it before. If that was our kid, what would we do in that situation? And, you know, I know I've said, and I think you have too, we would jump over whatever was keeping us from getting to that kid. It it would be hard not to. Yeah. It would be hard not to. I'm not saying I would hurt somebody but it would be hard not to want to go after the person that I knew murdered my child. Yeah. I would hurt somebody. I think you probably would. I'd be okay going to jail for it. Brian's attorney opposed the video being used as evidence, but his motion to suppress it was denied. I mean, you're going to have to try that, right? (laughs) Because if that video is allowed to be entered into evidence, it's game over for your client. I mean, there's just no way around it. How is a jury going to view that videotape and not find these guys guilty at both Brian and Tory's trials? The prosecution showed graphic photos of Cassie's body. I'm sure that along with the videos helped sway the jury in their favor. The prosecution also played videotapes of Brian's interviews kind of showing how he you know, had lied from one interview to the next. You almost want to like play a little bit of that interview, play a little bit of the other tape. Yep. Yep. So Brian's attorney's tactic was 
to basically use the statement that Brian had made, that Tory threatened to kill him if he talked to the police. So he argued that this whole thing was Tory's idea. But again, Gibbs, with the videotape, I just don't see how a jury would buy that argument. This one didn't. They convicted Brian of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder on April 17th, 2007. Pretty quick. Six days. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't take long, but it's quite a bit of compelling evidence, right? You have the videotape. They were led to the site where you know the items used in the murder were dumped. Tori Adam Chick's trial began May 31st, 2007. His lawyer argued that the videotape shows that Brian killed Cassie, not Tori. So he basically did the exact same thing that Brian's attorney did. He just tried to blame it all on Brian. He said, Brian was a troubled teen, fascinated by Columbine. According to the Times News, Tori's attorney said, the state will tell you, Brian Draper says, we just killed Stoddard. It does not say we. It says, I killed Cassie. But what I found interesting, Gibbs, was that Tory's lawyer did not try to suppress the video. He actually used the video to try to show the jury that Brian acted alone. He also said that DNA on a t-shirt and a glove proved that Brian acted alone. He said... You will see that he is obsessed with Columbine. You're going to hear that he had writings fantasizing about school shootings. All of the evidence is consistent with one murderer, and they already caught him. His name is Brian Lee Draper. And again, I I know I've said it before, but what else is this guy going to do? And I think Tory's attorney had the advantage of the fact that Brian had already been convicted. So I'm sure he, he tried to use that, right? They already convicted this guy. They already put him away. He's the one who did it. Right. Set my guy free. But even with that advantage, it's not going to help their case. No, no, there's no way. Get that video out there. It's just so. Yeah. Tory was found guilty of first degree murder and conspiracy to commit first degree murder on June 8th, 2007. So again, fairly quick. Neither one of these trials lasted more than, what, about seven, eight days. On August 24th, Tori and Brian were sentenced to life in prison. They were both sentenced to a 30-year fixed sentence for murder and an indeterminate life sentence for the conspiracy charge. The judge said that their ultimate motive was fame. They wanted to be famous like other serial killers and kill as many people as they could before they were caught. And they wanted to both know how it felt to actually kill someone. The judge rejected the arguments that only one boy was responsible. He said they both knew what they were doing. And again, I don't know how anybody would would view the tape or even look at a transcript and not understand that. Tory made a motion to seek a more lenient sentence, but it was denied on March 10th, 2008. His attorney argued that he had neurocognitive deficits in his prefrontal lobe, which led to impaired judgment. He said he was a boy with absolutely no hope. Every day, the routine would be the same until he dies. 
Okay. I don't know if any of that is true. I don't know if he's throwing, you know, what at the wall and seeing what sticks. I never saw this as a diagnosis. I never saw where a, a, a doctor testified. Maybe they did. And I just missed it. I don't think Cassie's grandfather thought the punishment was enough. He told the spokesman review. So what if Tori's in a tiny little room? My granddaughter will never leave her casket. That's pretty valid. Yeah, I, I think that's a normal reaction from the family member of a, a murdered victim. There's not going to be any sympathy for the fact that, you know, this kid's got to spend however much of his life sitting in a eight by eight cell or eight by six or whatever it is. Yeah. It's not going to bring my granddaughter back to me. I mean, they planned this murder by evidence of their video. Wasn't a spur of the moment thing. Wasn't like a, oh, we walked in, we didn't know that we were going to do it, and it just happened. No, it was planned. Oh yeah, it was. It was calculated. They had been thinking about it for some time, and not only that, Gibbs, but they had plans beyond this, and I think that scared a lot of people as well. Cassie's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the school district on claims of negligence. They said that the administration should have known that Tori and Brian were threats to students at the school. The judge threw out their case in September 2010, and the Idaho Supreme Court ruled that the school district was not negligent because the actions were not foreseeable. And I get that. Now, if somebody had overheard them talking in the lunchroom, and they had brought that to the attention of a school administrator. Sure. And that person did nothing. Then I think you're talking about a different situation. I agree. But if the school had no knowledge of it, it's kind of hard to say that they were negligent or that they, they did anything wrong. Brian appealed to the Supreme Court of Idaho, and that appeal was decided on September 13th, 2011. His conviction was upheld. In September 2013, Tory sought post-conviction relief based on ineffective assistance of counsel and on the grounds of cruel and unusual punishment. Which we hear a lot of. We do. We do. The district court denied his claims, so his attorneys appealed again. The Idaho Supreme Court ruled that Tory failed to prove ineffective assistance of counsel. They also ruled that the court appropriately considered his age at sentencing. A life sentence for a minor under these conditions did not violate the Eighth Amendment. And on December 28, 2017, the Idaho Supreme Court upheld the conviction of Tori Adamchik. Tori's mother, Shannon, wrote a book about the case titled The Guilty Innocent. Yeah, she basically wrote this book about everything from her perspective. She told the Times News, it's important to me that people who want to know what happened have the opportunity to know what happened. Now, she insisted that Tori didn't participate in stabbing Cassie, but she doesn't deny his involvement in the conspiracy to kill her. She says that the physical evidence of stabbing points only to Brian, which I think is a point that Tori's attorney tried to make at trial. She doesn't think her son is completely innocent. He did lie to the police. He did drive them to the crime scene and he helped bury evidence. But she said Tori was just acting on his desire to make a horror movie. It was Brian Draper 
who came up with the plot to kill Cassie. They talked about murder because it gave them thrills. But Tori was only pretending, and he wasn't really going to hurt anyone. So he was only pretending on the tape what he said? That he stabbed Cassie? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Now, we just talked about it earlier. Yeah, it was right. How does a parent react when their child murders someone? I think it's going to be tough to believe in your heart that your child really did this. Now, I think most people disagree with Shannon. They think she's biased, obviously, because she's Tori's mother. Cassie's family experienced extreme depression after her death. Her aunt lost her job. Her cousin tried to take her own life. We talked about it, Gibbs. What's it like for a 13-year-old girl to discover the dead body of her 16-year-old cousin? Yeah. How difficult would that be? And then to continue to live in that house for however long they did, knowing that that's where she died. Yeah, that's true. We don't know how long they lived there. Frank Contreras left his family after he struggled with alcoholism. He felt like he couldn't love his family anymore. I think the Contreras family thought that they were living in their dream home. But obviously, after this happened, it turned into a nightmare. They bought the home in 2005. They'd only been living there about a year when the murder happened. They struggled to sell the house, even at a discounted price. Tori and Brian are both 31 years old and are both incarcerated at Idaho State Correctional Institution. Gibbs, you know, as we wrap up this case, I think it's very difficult for people to believe that no one else noticed that these two boys were planning a gruesome murder. They had talked about it openly, not maybe not specifically to people, but it doesn't seem as though they were trying to hide it all that much. If they're sitting at, you know, let's say a lunch table talking about the fact that they're, they're going to kill someone. There's no doubt they were obsessed with violent horror movies Again, I don't want to put too much stock into that. I like horror movies. My kids love horror movies. We watch them together. You guys do, yeah. I never sit there thinking that these movies are going to influence my kids to go do something bad. I I, I don't think that. I think you're worried more about me influencing them. I'm very worried about your influence. Now, what I do think should have been very worrisome is the fact that Brian was obsessed with the Columbine school shooting. You know, we talked about the website that he had. It looked as though it was a good thing until you got to the bottom and there will be more victims. Again, a little website. I don't know who else would have seen it. Right. If anybody had, I don't know how you take that as anything other than an ominous kind of premonition or a, a warning that, Hey, something bad is about to happen. They talked openly about killing at school. Which is probably what led to that lawsuit or. Yes, I'm sure it did. I'm but, sure that was probably the basis for it. But like you said, if an administrator didn't hear that. Or they were not told about it. Yeah. Then really what could they have done because they had no reason to do anything. It's a tough case though. I mean, there's no way around that. You know, you and I talk a lot about being parents. A lot of people listening right now are parents. I think as a parent, you're always trying to walk that line between 
giving your kids a little space, giving them a little freedom, but at the same time, you know, kind of monitoring who they're hanging out with, what they're up to. It's a tough job, right? Being a parent. Sure is. You're not always going to be liked because your kids aren't always going to like, you know, the, the angle that you take. Most kids don't really like you prying into their life, right? But I mean, I think as a parent, you got to do some of that. Sometimes you do. I mean, I like to know who my children's friends are. I like to know what they're, what type of people they are. Well, sure. Because you know, there's always those influences. I think one big takeaway from this case, and, and it's a takeaway from a number of cases that we do involving kids, involving school, is that. You know, kids have to know, and I think they know this today much more so than they did 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. They have to know that, you know, you got to report people. If you overhear somebody talking about committing violent acts towards another person, you can't just blow that stuff off anymore. I'm not sure that you really should have ever done that, but I think today more than ever, you can't let that slide. No. Best alert somebody. Yeah. And, and again, we've talked about it. it's tough. If it's your friend, you know, you don't want to lose that friendship, but do you really want to be the person that knew something was going to happen and didn't do what you could to stop it? Yeah. Because you're potentially saving lives, but also helping that friend out by not allowing them to do something that is going to ruin their lives and others. Forever. Yeah. That's, that's a good point as well. But that's it for our case on the murder of Cassie Joe Stoddard. Tough all the way around. Sure is. We got some voicemails. You want to check those out? Let's hear them. Hey, guys. I am calling from Vancouver, BC. My name is Ashley. Um, I just want to give a shout out to you guys that you guys are really, uh, I love your guys' podcast. Uh, I started doing a podcast a few years ago, and I think you guys are fabulous at it. Um, but I really wanted to actually uh, give a suggestion if you guys could look into and do a podcast episode on uh, the case that was from Calgary, Alberta. It happened uh, about five, six years ago. It was of Douglas Garland. He uh, had murdered uh, his, um, he murdered some grandparents and um, their grandson. It's actually a horrific, one of Calgary's most horrific uh, murders murders um and it was completely it was very traumatizing for the community and that i mem- remember it all too well unfortunately but yeah, i was curious if you guys would uh if you guys would do a podcast on that and anyways thank you guys so much for your fabulous podcast take care all right thanks for the voicemail and i will make sure that one is on the list i can't say i'm familiar with it what i will say is we have some amazing listeners up in calgary we do some really good friends also up that way. Hello, Mike and Gibby. This is Mel from Denver. I am listening to the Howard Elkins story right now, and I had to call and stop in the middle because I am rewatching the Dexter series in preparation for the new season that's coming out. And I just thought it was pretty odd that there really is a barrel girl. Um, you guys keep your own time ticking and have a nice day. Bye. Yeah, brutal story. It is. That that Howard Elkins one. I am excited for Dexter. You know that Dexter was one of my favorite shows. Yeah. I do need to go back and watch them all. 
Um, but I don't know when that's coming out. I think it's been pushed back probably due to COVID or something. I, I don't know what the date is on the, for the release on that. Yeah, I know you're excited. I see all the plastic that you bought. Yeah, I like to put it down in case things go bad between uh, you and me. Yeah. Uh, during a, a taping of an episode. I'm trying to get just, me to walk over to that area, but I won't. <laughs> just just in case. You know, I like to be prepared. Hi, um, my name is Michelle, and I am from Lubbock, Texas, and I've just recently started binging uh, your true crime episodes. Um, I listen to the new one, but then I go back and want, listen to all the old ones. And I just finished your, uh, James Rupert podcast and, uh, Gibby is talking about the movie Bernie. Um, I don't know if y'all actually know that that's based on a true crime in Texas where a funeral home director befriended an elderly lady and, um, and follows that story pretty closely that Gibby described. Um, Keep up the good work, and I enjoy uh, your podcast. Thanks. Yeah, so you will probably hear it as you get further on in the episodes, the older episodes. Yeah. But we actually did a a full Patreon episode. We did. On Bernie Tita and, and the murders and all that. Hey, Mike and Gibby. This is Tiffany from Florida. I am a new listener, but I am totally addicted. I listen to you guys all the time. I had actually emailed you a couple weeks ago about a couple of suggestions, and I am catching up still, and I just listened to the episode on H.H. Holmes. What a mysterious guy. (laughs) I actually called in because there was a show on the History Channel a couple years ago with his relative who wanted to exhume his body. He had a theory that H.H. Holmes and Jack the Ripper are the same person, it was a couple of years ago. I don't remember all the details, but if you get a chance to, I highly recommend watching it because some of the connections he made is incredible. Anyways, I love you guys. Love your podcast. Love the show. Stay safe and keep your own time ticking. Awesome. Thank you for the voicemail. We actually had a lot of people, Gibbs, reach out to us and ask why we didn't talk about the H.H. Holmes, Jack the Ripper connection. I know a lot of people have theorized that. I, I don't know if the majority of experts I'll call them or, you know, people that are really in the know believe that's the case. I I think that's kind of why we left it out. Plus it was a long episode anyway, (laughs) and you can't put everything in. All right. No mailbag this week, but a clarification from last week, Nicole from Australia sent us the big bags of Tim Tams. Like some Tim Tams. We love our Tim Tams. The bags, as we noticed also had, animals fornicating yeah on it I which thought it was hilarious. we got a big kick out of i didn't say it last week but, right um but there was no note so i went off the shipping label which said i still love australia so that's who i gave the credit to turns out that's the shipping company i guess oh. <laughs> <laughs> so i got a note from nicole but she's like no 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 it was from me yeah i just wanted to clarify that i guess the note didn't make it into the uh the box or maybe i threw it away without seeing it Appreciate it, though. Yeah, we do appreciate it. But that's it, buddy, for another episode of True Crime All the Time. So for Mike and Gibby, stay safe and keep your own time ticking.
The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. <laughs> Judy Justice. Only on Freebie.